Hello and welcome back. Today I am joined by Wayne Diesel, sports physiotherapist. So Wayne, thank you for joining. I've not seen you for, I think it probably is, before you moved to, to Miami. So great to see you again. Yeah, Andy, thank you very, very much. Um, and again, as I mentioned earlier, I'm very honoured to be on the podcast um, talking and hopefully sharing some of my experiences with uh, other physios and perhaps motivating them to to seek similar paths because you know I feel very blessed in the path that I've had and the opportunities that I've been given. Brilliant. No, no, great. Well, it definitely will be because you've got a really interesting background. So if we start at the beginning then, so where are you from originally? Um, Andy, I was born in South Africa, um, a city called Johannesburg. Um, that's where I went to school. I did my physiotherapy education at the Vitwatersrand University. Um, it was quite an interesting procedure because I, I didn't start in physiotherapy. I'd always wanted to be a dentist for whatever reason. Um, and then in South Africa, at the stage that I was in South Africa as a white male, we had to do two years of national duty in the military. Um, and I became a medic and I, I had experience and exposure to dentists and then I had a look in other people's mouths. I thought everyone had some of the mouths like we've got, but it wasn't the case at all. And I decided that I wasn't going to spend the rest of my life um, looking inside people's mouths uh, and, and doing that work. So that, I shelved that and then I gave it a bit more thought. Uh, I've got four brothers, um, all either engineers or computer scientists. My father was a, a, an engineer. So I decided I wanted to go the route of perhaps computer science. Um, I decided that I did two years of computer science before I started physiotherapy. Um, and again, you know, I just I felt that you know I didn't want to sit at the desk working on a computer all the time. I preferred the interaction with people. And my dad actually had a good friend as the, the physiotherapist who was lecturing at the time. He said, "Why don't you go and speak to her and see if it's something that you're interested in?" Um, and I did, and I got accepted into physiotherapy, and you know. The rest uh, is history, basically. But it was an interesting path. But I think having two years of military duty, um, starting my computer science, it allowed me to settle rather than going straight into a course. It gave me an opportunity to really analyse and look at where I went. And perhaps I was a little bit maturer when I went into physiotherapy school, looking at it from those angles. And again, you know, I don't think today I would change anything. You know, these people say, "Well, you wasted four years. You could have been working. You could have been earning." But I'm very happy. I think it, it grounded me. It gave me uh, views into other people's lives, the way other things work. And I think that's important. And maybe that's also what influenced me to go seeking other opportunities all over the world. Yeah, no, I think a couple of people have brought up that having a, a, a career, not that that was a career beforehand, but having experience before moving into that world does give you, um, well, extra experience and understanding and maybe appreciation for what you really I agree, you know, and you know, I think that's something that um, modern physios and a lot of young people today, they're just so desperate to get into work, to, to climb up the ladder, and instead of taking the time to get that experience, and the same applies in sports physio. You know, I look at, at even my, my history in sports physio, where I, I didn't start out as a physiotherapist saying, I'm going to become a sports physiotherapist. Uh, I just opened it up and, and saw what came out, and, and that actually the way that I became a physio, uh, interested in sports, shall I say is through a motorbike accident. Um, I was coming back from, um, I used to represent my university fits in, in football, soccer as we called it in South Africa, and coming home just before one of the inter-university tournaments and I, I had a bike accident and I had a thoracic uh, spinal fracture and things in that there. So I couldn't play in the tournament, but because I was a big part of the team, they asked me to be the physio 
for the team during the upcoming tournament. And I really loved it. I said, this is it. This is what I want to do. So, again, it shows you out of adversity, sometimes comes something positive. And I think, again, had that not happened, maybe I wouldn't have uh, persevered or got into sports physio. And, you know, at that time, it was an interesting time in South Africa where we were just about coming out of apartheid. Things were coming to an end. So, you know, the international sport was unheard of in South Africa. It was all provincial, as we call it then, so playing in the various provinces within South Africa. But we hadn't yet um, branched out into international sports. So there wasn't really the demand for professional sports physios. Um, and I was there at the right time um, because then the search was on, they needed people. And again, you know, fortunately for me, it was a male-dominated um, environment at that stage, looking for for males to work in sports physiotherapy. And again, in our class, there were four males and 28 females um, as a physio. So my chances and two or three of those physios weren't interested in sports. So really they didn't have much of an option. And again, I, I was very blessed and very fortunate to be in that situation. I'm glad to see that things have opened up and there's a lot more diversity. But that allowed me into the opportunity. So before I knew it, I was working with national sports bodies, gymnastics, um, in cricket. So basically, whoever I went to, they said, Wayne, please, we need a physio and we need someone. So I got into all sorts of different sports right at an early age. Um, and that, again, gave me that, that insight into the different um, sporting events, whether it was Commonwealth Games, Olympics, whatever else. I was able to touch on that. And I think that, again, um, opened up my eyes to what different sportsmen do, what they don't do, uh, whether it's gymnastics, field hockey, cricket, um, archery, uh, swimming, you name it, you know, there was there was a desperate need for physiotherapists to start working in the profession. Um, and again, I just certainly rode that wave. Yeah, so it was right place, right time for it, which, uh, which yeah, is, is great. And again, a lot of other people that have made it to the top of it is like, yeah, we're very lucky. But again, you make your own luck in terms of, of those things. And just going back to in terms of Johannesburg, just from a personal perspective, like I was meant to be in South Africa a couple of times, but COVID um, put the put an um, end to that. But like Johannesburg, like that's, you know, it's you hear a lot of stories around that. What was it like growing up in Johannesburg? Uh, again, I was extremely blessed. You know, and I, I certainly we had white privilege and whatever people say, it's exactly what it is. We had our schooling, we had everything done, we had fantastic houses, we had huge open players, we had sports fields, we had everything um, open to us. So again, again, very, very fortunate. Um, and again, you know, part of what I'm trying to do is maybe put back into some of that environment, help with the younger black athletes, the younger black physios to come through now and give them the opportunities that were given to me, um, only because of this color of my skin and my sex. So there was things that I benefited from probably more so than others, just because of the position that I was in and what I found. So, you know, I love Johannesburg. Uh, um, I still go there. We have family there. We go back and visit. We have um, the national game parks that we love. I love wild animals. So it's part of a, a good break, which is unique in a lot of sense. You know, not a lot of countries that you can go to see lion roaming wild elephant. Has things changed? Like, have things changed in terms of like, black-white divide? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, completely from when I was growing up uh, to where there's now. You know, there's a, a stronger and stronger black middle class that is developing. They are starting to open business. Things are starting to happen for them. So certainly, um, I think things are hopefully improving for the better. Unfortunately, there's still a large amount of poverty and, and, and issues going on there. And that's going to take time. You know, 
look at what's happened and how many years it took to get them to that. Bed. You can't just suddenly open it up and expect things to be okay. Um, we just have to support them and, and give them time. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm optimistic about it, Andy. I really think that there's a great future for that country. There's a lot of dedicated people there. Um, you know, there's going to be issues, but hey, tell me which country hasn't got issues. I've lived in the US and in the UK, and I look at what's going on at the moment. So it's not very different wherever you are. But I, I think, you know, let's hope things turn around because, you know, what Nelson Mandela did for that country and things like that is truly amazing. We have so much diversity there. And that diversity, uh, you know, is, is wonderful. I just watched uh, South Africa the cricketers beat India um, in the international five-day test as well as a one-day test. So they still got a very strong thing. The, the Blitzbocker, which is this rugby sevens team, uh, the Springboks just won. They beat Argentina in the final. So, you know, they're doing well. Um, they're holding their own. And there's a tremendous amount of talent and depth there. And, and through sport, I think, you know, certainly when we won the, the Rugby World Cup back in 96, how that changed South Africa. They've just got to keep using sports to help change and to help show people that it's acceptable. We can live together, you know, and, and we can be successful. Mm, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Now, it's great to hear then if you can see that there has been huge changes over there. Yeah. So coming back to, to your career then, so you'd got involved in sport, whether it's, you know, a little bit of little bit of luck, but you took advantage of that. So. At that point, did you have a vision of, of where you wanted to go with it? Um, not really. You know, maybe that's the thing that I try and explain to people. I had no vision um, when I was just graduated that I'm going to go to San Antonio and work in basketball in the NBA. I had no idea I was going to work in Gloucester rugby. I, none of those things even came to me. All I was focused on is where I am at the moment. And I think I, I, I bided my time waiting for the right opportunities rather than committing myself and saying, I'm going to do this one day and this is going to be my ultimate goal. So what I ended up doing is I went and did my PhD in exercise physiology with Tim Noakes in Cape Town. Um, and again, that sort of strengthened a lot. And again, I think I was fortunate because I was in a unique-ish situation where I was a physiotherapist and I had a PhD in exercise physiology. So those two gave me, you know, the next level um, of getting into sports teams where, again, national, the rugby teams and that, because I had the, the dual qualifications, I was able to help on the exercise side of it as well. It gave me a lot of insight into what the athletes did, what they needed. So again, it's, it's tough coming into an environment where you don't fully understand the stresses and strains on, on the athletes. Uh, but having that, you can communicate. And then once you become, and I was again fortunate to be head of the departments in, in various elite teams, but then I could communicate. I wasn't an expert in uh, exercise physiology training of the uh, NFL uh, players or basketball players or whatever for that matter, but it didn't matter because I could understand and I could accept what they were doing and listen to them and, and understand the GPS trackings and things and heart rate variability, whatever else is, but then stick to my own. Equally, I could then talk to the doctors about diagnosing uh, uh, potential plans, scanning players, uh, signing players, whatever else. And again, it was being able to sit on both sides and then get the experts in and not try and be the expert myself and make decisions myself, but rather get outstanding um, people to come and work with me and then giving them the freedom to make the decisions, but taking the management side of it away from them and saying, okay, let me deal with this. Let me try and put together teams of people that can work cohesively and, and then not work in silos, which has been such a problem for so long and in so many teams. 
And, and I think that was probably one of the biggest successes that I had is not so much that I was the guru and I had to do all the treatments, but just get the right people in and give them the opportunities to do what they can do. And so was that something that you had in mind when you moved over to so Gloucester? Gloucester was your first role in the UK? Yes, Gloucester was the first role. I'd, I'd been working with a Springbok uh, rugby team uh, ahead of that. So I had a little bit of exposure coming to the UK. My brother had just moved uh, to Gloucester a few years before that. Um, and he introduced me to some of the hierarchy just because I was in the Springbok. So in between some of the games, I'd go down and watch some of the games. I got to know um, some of the, the, the front office, the admin staff um, at Gloucester Rugby. Um, and then next thing they, they contacted me and said, Wayne, look, there's an opportunity. We, we really want to develop and, and, and grow our team. We believe that there's a, a huge amount of potential. And again, the, the, I must stress that I left South Africa for good reasons. It wasn't that you know we had terrible things happening to us and I hated it and I had to get out of it. It was just a case of, look, I want to expose my family to other options. What does the rest of the world look like? Having been in South Africa for so many years and isolated and stuck into things, I was desperate to try and go out and explore. And also now that I've, I've been the head physio with the Olympics, Commonwealth Games, All Africa Games, Bafana Bafana, which is a national soccer team, the rugby teams and I just said, look, I've got to move, you know, I've got to go and, and put myself against others and see whether, you know, I am this person that can, can meet with these challenges. I want to go and put myself. So it was interesting and it was, again, part of a whole wonderful journey, you know, where I could then go and say, right, I want to become someone else. I want to put myself into, into difficult situations that I don't necessarily understand. But then again, using the same principles, I'm not going to come be the expert. I'm not the one that's going to tell them how to play basketball, how to play football, how to play tennis, whatever it is. I'm going to be there to support. And I think that's that's stood me in good stead over the years, where it's rather than trying to pretend that you know what you do. It's more about, okay, let me see if I can help with the support staff. Let the coaches do the coaching. I will do the, the, the medical side of it and look after the players. Sure, there's a lot of learning. You know, every sport's different. The demands are different. The injuries are different. And that. But that's, that's the exciting thing. And that's what's open to physios, you know, if they can go and look at. And I didn't want to just become a single-minded, one-sport-only physio. And I look, I respect those people that do it. I think it's wonderful to have 25, 30 years in, in one sport in a career. I just decided to, I wanted that diversity. I wanted to go out and experience different cultures, different continents, put myself into positions where it's challenging. You know, it's not the easiest thing walking into an NFL team when you know nothing about the NFL. But, you know, I certainly, again, as I said earlier, I, I certainly don't regret that. And I think anyone that's interested in doing it, I'd encourage you to look at those opportunities. So in terms of that, so how long, I mean, for one, starting out um, representing South Africa, I can imagine would be a massive honour across a number of those different sports. So how long were you, how did you get involved in, in working at the national level and how long did that last? So it certainly lasted when, basically, I, 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 when did I graduate? 87. Then I did my PhD. I got my PhD in 91, 92-ish. So it was around about that time, and, and in between that time, I started already working with national um, organisations with gymnastics, so women's gymnastics. Um, and again, because the, because of the national team body, then there was games. Then I started going with that because then they nominate me as a physio potentially to go with the national teams. Um, then when I did that, it was again. Then football came to me. Then it was rugby because some of the um, the directors of of medicine in those organizations like SAFRU, which is South African Rugby Union, 
uh, they were the ones that were also working with the Commonwealth Games or the All Africa Games. So because of my contact with that, they then brought me into that. So it's like anything, it's a people business, Andy. You know, we are involved in the people business. If you don't get involved with working with people, you don't have a business, basically. So again, it's, it's not just about smooching up and, and, and getting with people, but you have to have those people skills. Um, and and I, I think that's one thing that as physios, we need to become better at is actually having that personal skills, working on the personal side, the soft touches, the, you know, the EQ rather than the IQ. Mm. Yeah, so then we talked about the, the move to Gloucester then. So how was that transition, both in terms of moving into a one sport full time, but also moving country? How did you find that? Yeah, it was certainly challenging because, again, coming from South Africa, going into Gloucester, it's a, it's a unique experience. Our, our kids had to adapt because they were, you know, youngish, but they were still at school. So the school terms in South Africa start in January and in December, but the school terms yeah, are different. So they start at different ages. So we had to then transition from the family side of getting them into a whole new environment, which is foreign to them. They'd got quite accustomed to that, but they were young enough. And, and I think it's also helped them to um, accept change and deal with change. Um, so getting into that, I was fortunate to, to have a really good um, uh, management team in Gloucester Rugby. We did very well that year. We won the Pardon Cup. We came top of the league that year. We had a phenomenal success on and off the field. So that, that really tightened up. You know what it's like. When the team's winning, it's successful. Management, everyone's happy. Everyone's prepared to listen to ideas. And that allowed me to do that. I think I'm sure it would have been different had we come bottom of the table, had things gone whatever. But unfortunately, the owner at that stage, a guy called Tom Wilkins, over to Gloucester in about 2002, um, having met with the the owners and the the um, the head coach, a guy called Nigel Melville. They contacted me in South Africa um, during having met me through the rugby team, and they asked me to come over and work as a head physio at uh, Gloucester Rugby. And again, it was something that you know I was interested in. Um, I wanted to go and experience the world outside of South Africa, having been in apartheid um, throughout the most of my you know years that I'd been there. I wanted to go and see what it was like. Also, I think that was important as I might mentioned. I wanted to challenge myself, um, having been head of various uh, national teams, worked for you know rugby, which is one of the, one of the biggest sport. Football, um, biggest sport going gun, gun to the Olympics. I felt that I needed to go out and challenge myself, and this was a wonderful opportunity. I enjoyed working in rugby. Um, there's a, a special camaraderie with players um, in rugby teams. I think because partly because of the the violence and the the aggression and the physicality side of it, that they have to look after each other, you know. And it, and it's unlike a lot of other sport. I was a footballer, soccer player growing up. Um, and we'd never had that, um, but certainly in rugby, you need to look after each other, otherwise you could get seriously hurt. So I was, I was, I was intrigued by that and I wanted to challenge myself. So when I arrived in Gloucester, some of the issues that we had, obviously, from a family side of it, is that the kids were at school. So we're in South Africa, the school term year started in January, ended in December. It was very different in the UK to mid-year to mid-year. Um, and that meant that they had to go up or down a year, uh, depending on, on, on what happened. So it was challenging for the family to do it, but they were youngish. And, you know, I must say, again, it, it, it helped them to deal with change um, and understand change. And again, I think 
think that's part of what has was given me the ability to move is that once you've dealt with change and felt hey i can do this i can cope with this it makes it that much easier the second time it's a lot of people are, are, are wary of challenging themselves because they don't believe that they can do it they think it's going to be a failure rather than going out there and giving it your best shot and saying believe in yourself i can do this and this is what it is so um Fortunately, with Gloucester, um, on the one side, is that we had a phenomenal season. Uh, we, we ended up the uh, top of the table in the regular season. Unfortunately, they just introduced a playoff system at that time, so we lost the playoff to Wasps. But we won the Power Gen Cup, which was tremendous for Gloucester rugby. They were really a, a dominant team throughout that year. Um, but come the end of the year, with all of those things, the... Um, the owner had run into some financial difficulties, a guy called Tom Wilkinshaw, um, and I was approached to say, look, we need to trim down the support staff. And I felt awkward about it and uncomfortable because a lot of those people had been there before I got there. So I didn't want to be the one kicking them out to stay there. I said, no, I'm going to be the one that has to go. I can't, I can't get rid of my staff that have been loyal to me and done whatever else. So, Fortunately, it was, uh, again, through a, another contact, through a guy called Matt Yates, um, who is a, a British runner, a track runner, who used to come to Johannesburg to train, do altitude training, and he used to come to one of the physiotherapy, or the, a physiotherapy practice that I had in Johannesburg. And I got to know him really well. And he found out that they were looking for someone um, as head physio, head of medical department, and my, my background in football was that I played football, I understood it, I'd worked with a national team. So I wasn't concerned, it wasn't as challenging as going into rugby, which is a sport that I didn't really play growing up. Um, and I, I welcomed the opportunity because it, again, it allowed the other staff that were working within the organization of Gloucester Rugby to stay on. And I could then move out and it gave me, you know, that, and that's, that's how I started and that's how I left Gloucester Rugby. Right, and then so in terms of that, that so that was Charlton, was it that then you, you moved on to? So mm. I mean, they were they were a Premier League team at the time, weren't they? Very much so. Yeah, with Alan Kirbishley, um, he was the the head coach manager um, at that stage, and again another fantastic individual. And I was very fortunate. Um, my initial exposure into the EPL was to have someone like Alan Kirbishley as the the manager, where I remember as if it was yesterday where he was he met me at the um, apartment that i was going to be staying in he took the time out to come and introduce himself he, he met me there he did everything so again that just made me feel part of the family and i think that is so important where you can really get to to understand and to meet and, and have a good communication with the, the head coach the manager the the owner the um, director of football whatever those senior positions are those those relationships are critical, um, and that started off a wonderful period with with Charlton Athletic um, Football, where I spent about five six seasons with him. Um, unfortunately, then I think it was typical of so many teams that they wanted they were aspiring. We were always mid table, and they always wanted to get into Europe. They thought they could do better um, without Kirbyshley. They thought that they needed someone that's going to take them to the next level, but. Having said that, I think uh, Kerbs also felt that he could do better and that he, he also wanted to go and experiment and said, I need a club that's bigger, that's got more money, that's got whatever else. And once they started introducing those changes, things went south. Um, and 
you know, he went to West Ham. Uh, we had uh, Paji coming in to to Charlton Athletic and Dowie, those things, and things just didn't work out. You know, it, it, it was a different dynamic. Things didn't work out. You know, for whatever reason, you know, they then got relegated that season. And just prior to the relegation, um, one of the staff members, a guy called Nathan Gardner, who was a sports scientist and you know, physio that had gone to Tottenham, um, they were looking for a head of um, medical at, at Spurs. Um, they approached me. I went for an interview. And again, it was, I was very fortunate to um, land the position. Um, Damien Camoni was a director of football at that stage. He, they did all the interviews. I went there. I got accepted into the role. And yeah, it's quite a funny story where I'd never met the manager, unlike uh, Curbs at Charlton, before my first day at Spurs. So I, th I thought it was going to be as comfortable and as cosy as it was. Martin Yol was the, the current manager at Spurs at the time. And uh, I remember, again, very, very vividly walking into the office the very first day that I was there to introduce myself and say, hi, this is who I am. I walked into his office and this guy didn't know who I was. Martin had no clue who I was. And I started introducing myself and the next thing, you know, he just cut me off and he started talking in Dutch to, you know, the co the assistant coaches and whatever. I think what he didn't realize is that I could understand Dutch because I was South African. <laughs> so I don't want to repeat what he said um, in that meeting, but I had this tough decision to make. And I, I actually stopped him and I said, excuse me, Martin, could I leave? Because I understand what you're saying. I understand that. And it is amazing, the transformation. His face changed and he, and he actually, I think, from that day trusted me. Because instead of me being quiet and not saying anything, he said, Wayne, that's it. Now, okay, let's talk. Let's get on with this thing. I understand what it is. So, again, it's that, having that relationship that I mentioned earlier and that ability to be able to talk to people and, and be honest and transparent. And, and we had a great relationship. Unfortunately, he didn't last that long as a lot of Spurs managers don't seem to be lasting at the minute. But um, wonderful, wonderful many eight, eight years at, at Tottenham. You know, we, I was there the last time we won in 2009. I think we won uh, the Carling Cup at that stage. Uh, we beat Chelsea and things like that. So there's some fantastic memories, some really good times. We were also moving into a new um, training ground. Um, so I was instrumental in, in helping develop that, set up a new training ground. And it is a truly phenomenal training ground. They put a lot of effort and credit to um daniel levy and everyone else for funding it and for having the vision to say let's not cut corners let's make it the very best so it stands the test of time and that's always a challenge andy is when you're in those positions to say how do i then go and and structure this thing because when i started in physio as a sports physio it was myself and a doctor sometimes not even a doctor it was myself so I was the doctor, I was the nutritionist, I was the massage therapist, I was the sports scientist. I, you had so many roles that you had to play within those organizations. And looking over the, the course of time over 10 years, how that had exploded into, you know, just so much support staff. And you look even today, what's happened. Um, those are the things that I think, you know, then to try and say, what are we going to look like in 10, 20 years? If this is what's happening now, are, are we at the tipping point? Is it going to uh, go up again? It's trying to balance that because if you bring in too much space, you then have people wandering around and you lose that cohesiveness, the, the, the sort of togetherness that you want. People then drift into different things. So that was a challenge. And again, I learned a tremendous amount from that experience about helping to set out um, the various areas and that but i think as i stressed earlier having 
some wonderful staff that were specialists in their own areas, I gave them the authority and to make decisions for their zones. They just had to bring their ideas to me and I had to try and make the flow work. Because like I said, silos was something that was very prevalent in sports teams. It was my job to try and bring all these different departments together and say, hey, sports scientists, hey, physios, hey, massage therapists, nutritionists, uh, strength coaches, whatever. Let's work together. Let's make sure that we actually work together and provide the best support that we can for the player, rather than one trying to prove he's better than the other, or the others are doing the damage and blaming each other when things go wrong. When things go wrong, we all take the fall. When things go right, everyone benefits from that. And it's giving recognition when things do go right to the people that have made that influence and making empowering them to make those decisions. And I think though that's probably one of the biggest things that I've learned through my management time, is how to bring those people together and how important it is that they listen to each other and you allow these people to voice their opinions. Yeah, there's, there's a load of questions that I've got from what you've just said there. So just, just going back to when you went into Tottenham then. So when you're getting offered the job there, I guess it does change from, from role to role. But like, so you, you're in negotiations with Damien Camoli. Like, does he talk about what the manager wants or is, it, is the medical team siloed at that point in Tottenham? Um, no, I think, you know, I wasn't aware that there was a, a slight rift and sort of miscommunication between the head coach and Damien. You know, I understood when one person they spoke as an organization, because that's how I like to do. I, I represent everyone, not not in, in different silos. And I think clearly there were silos going on at the moment where there wasn't agreements or whatever else. And, and that was what it was. I think at that stage, directors of football weren't very common. They still aren't today. You know, and that was years ago. So that was really one of the first ones that they've had a director of football making a lot of the big decisions. But my naivety or whatever else, I assumed that that was indeed the case. So I understood what he said was what the organization wanted. This is what they want. This is their striving. And this is what I wanted to do. So the challenging position, again, is that putting yourself in those positions, it's finding out I've got to report to a director of football and I've got to report, importantly, to the head coach as well as the players. So trying to keep everyone happy is not the easiest thing in the world where a coach wants a player to play because he's got to win, where a director of football wants to protect that player because it's the asset for the organization. So they may not always be on the same page, but it's how you get those messages and the transparency. And that's the delicate part of it. And that's, I know, and I sympathize with a lot of my colleagues that are in similar situations. It's a tough, tough ask. You have to make sure that you sort of get it right, that you're open, you, you're transparent, that you're not take, seen as taking sides. Because the minute they think that you are siding with one or the other, that's when the trouble starts. So, yeah, certainly in, in that, those initial things, it was, again, unfortunately Spurs had had, I don't know if you were, there was a, a young boy that had a heart attack in Belgium, one of their, their players, a youth players. Um, he came back and he had associated brain injury damage with that thing. So there was a lot of, again, it was in the early days of where, um, staff weren't really CPR trained. They they hadn't done a lot of this thing, and there was a lot of expectations. They'd only just started doing testing and things, so there were a lot of questions to be asked, and you know a lot of pressure put on the medical staff. Um, because in hindsight, obviously the organisation's experts had said, "Other oh, medical staff, that's your responsibility." So they want to change, and that was what caused part of the change and for me to go in there. So they were very interested or very keen for me to make sure that that didn't happen again. Mm. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. Sort of, like you say, director of football is still relatively 
um, new and is not in a lot of different clubs and like the dynamic of, of how the club operates it seems to be pivotal and, and making a big difference so and then in terms of like developing that training ground which again is very impressive and Tottenham have really invested on the the infrastructure of the club and so on so when you were taking the role was that part of the project was, was that mentioned to you or sold to you as you could have a direct involvement in that Yes, indeed it was. You know, and that it was interesting because I thought that was eminent. It was going to be in two years. It took about four years before we, five years before we even got there. You know, it, it, on paper they can put things out, but it takes a lot of planning and a lot of time and a lot of work that's gone through that. Um, so yes, it, it was certainly part of the, the initial discussions where they did ask my my input and whether I felt that I could cope and manage some of the things, and I was comfortable in doing that. You know, I'd, I'd planned my own physio. Uh, practices in South Africa. I'd set up, uh, you know, the, um, managing things within different sports. So I had a, a good understanding. I'd, I'd travelled quite extensively by that stage, so I'd seen different setups, and I and I pretty much felt that I had um, an idea of what we needed. Fortunately for me, it, it, it took longer than what they anticipated because I was I was able to learn and understand what it was to Spurs, what they needed, how the academy worked, how you mix the academy with the pro proteins how they separated but an understanding and all of those things so there was a lot of in, uh, insight that again i was just completely blind to because i hadn't been there long enough and i think had i gone in there i probably wouldn't have made the the decisions that we ultimately made mm. you need the time of that you need to see that yeah yeah i can see that and again in that just going back to that the, the martin you the manager thing like one of the things that i know that certain clubs have tried to introduce is that the medical team is not like when a manager leaves a lot of the time you'd see the whole medical staff go what's your thoughts on that do you think it's possible to have a, a medical team that is that is separate although you're saying silos isn't good to some extent do you think it should be that way for medical and that coaching staff i, I agree completely that it has to be that way and i think we need to be separated out and somewhat protected in a way from the head coaches um, from the medical staff certainly i think the new manager can bring in someone as a, a, a maybe as a fitness coach or someone and they often do the assistant coaches work on the fitness because they've got a certain style that they like and understand their drills and everything else so you need to be able to bit like a chameleon you need to be able to turn around and see that and maybe it's again part of the background is that you have to be flexible not every player wants the same treatment massage depending if they come from the french may more like electrotherapy you know other people like hands-on treatment so you have to uh, uh, treat accordingly to what the player wants in there and what the expectations are so likewise with the coaches they don't have the same approach you know some of them have got a very hard line hard-nosed approach to to players harry redknapp with gareth bale for example you know gareth only became successful because harry was determined that we weren't going to run on every time gareth bale fell to the floor because harry at that stage felt that gareth was going down way too easily and he he refused to allow me to go on the field when he was down he said no he'll get up on himself so again it's understanding the dynamics the the peculiarities and winning the trust of the the head coach but also understanding that you are looking after the assets of that organization of Spurs and that's the most important thing these players Gareth Bale is another example he was signed from Southampton for I think 10 million or whatever I can't remember the exact figure but he got sold for an astronomical sum at the end of it and I think that's part and parcel obviously to the coaches developing and giving him the opportunities but also the medical staff looking after that individual so if you've got a good medical staff and I, 
I should say performance staff to to include the strength coaches, sports scientists, everyone else. That needs to be there. They are your back staff. And I've always argued that it's like a Formula One racing team. If you don't have the best team available to look after that car, you're not going to perform. And, and that's what we did. That was the approach that I used throughout my career, saying, let's get the best together. But then you're ultimately reporting to the owner because you're looking after the asset. And if they can do and they trust you enough, you know, there's, I've had many tough conversations when it's come to signing windows and, and signing players where a coach is desperate to sign a player. I might think that that player, through the, the medical information that I've received from the specialists, is a, is a risk. I've got to give that risk. And it's rather saying sign or don't sign. It's a case of this is what we perceive as a medical staff, as a specialist, saying going forward. And then it's for them to sort out. But again, rather than siding with the one and saying, I don't think I should sign him, it's just say, this is what it is. I'm in risk management here. It's like your investment. You come invest something with me, it might, there's a high risk, it might work out, but equally it might bomb out completely. And it's just putting that as, as unemotionally as possible, as with many facts, and just saying it's not a personal thing. I'm not doing it because I dislike or like the player or whatever else and want to be friends with them. I'm doing this to the owner or to the thing. Here's the information and trying to get that information to them at the same time. Because if you give it to the one before the other one gets it, there's every chance that they contact the other one and say, this is what have you. And he said, and because he hasn't heard, they then back, they could become defensive immediately. So it's making sure that you don't, you've got to be very careful just how you, you, you send that information and communication then becomes a big part of it. And that, that those, those situations certainly taught me how one should be communicating with the hierarchy. And obviously with players. I think that's really interesting because again, as a, as a fan, is that I am, you know, a big football fan, is that either the conception is that it's a fail or a pass, they fail the medical, but that's a really good way of presenting it. Whereas you're presenting the risks, even acknowledging there may be a potential problem or there is a problem, but it's up to you if you want to sign him. I'm just letting you know what the position is. Yeah, and 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 again, that then once you've established that form of communication. The same thing happens, forget the signing, but if it, the decision for a player to play, we've got a Carling Cup final, we've got a big man, we, this, this is either going to get us in the top four or not, this is going to get us into Champions League, this is going to get us into Europe, we've got to win. So you've got to understand that you can't go there and dig your heels in and say there's no way he can play because there's a 30% risk of him getting injured. You've got to be able to say to the coach and specifically to the player, because he's the one that has ultimately got to agree. You've got to empower them and say, this is what I'm going to be telling the coaches. I think there's a 30 to 50 to 70 to 80 to 10 to whatever the percentage chance of. And it's not in exact science. That's the art. It's not exact. And you're saying, this is what I believe your chances of getting injured. Maybe it's a case of restricting time on the field, not playing as much, changing position, change the style. But that's, again, for the coaches to decide. I try not to influence too much of that. But again, saying... I think he can withstand this amount. Yeah, are the facts. You guys make the decision rather than us make the decision. And that's helped, again, again, smooth that that communication issue, potential communication issues that you may have with coaches and with players. Because if you're telling a coach that this player can't play without telling the player, and the coach has a conversation with the player, and the player then says, but I can play. I'm fine, coach. I'm, I'm going to play. Then the coach comes back to you and says, I've just spoken to the player and he said he's going to play. Now, 
be aware, Andy, as you know, that the players are often going to try and please the coaches. They will often say because they feel they don't want to say to a coach, I can't play. So they need us to be strong. So you need to know your player and you need to know and say to the player, this is, this is what I'm going to tell him. And you tell the player because I know that the coach is going to be behind our backs, go and talk to that player so that at least he's protected and say, right, Wayne spoke to me. This is what he thinks. So he's on the same page. So these are the little things that are beyond the skills of the therapist in treating. You can be an outstanding physio, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be the best in an environment like that, where you're having to be part of the decisions, keeping people happy, bearing in mind you're with them 24-7, four months on end. Yeah. yeah, politics is involved in everything, isn't it? So it's, <laughs> this is great. Yeah, it's really good insight. So have you had any particular managers, whether you want to mention names or not, that you've, you've not had that rapport where they've 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 liked what you've said or they're just like no you don't tell me I, i'm going to dictate absolutely yeah i've had several and again that's part of what you have to try and deal with as as the back support staff that's exactly what we are and it's again you've got to leave your ego at the door before you go into the building that's over they're going to shout they're going to do whatever else because they are under tremendous pressure to get results and if the results go wrong, they're going to look for someone to blame. So often it's the medical staff, players are injured, they're not fit enough. So depending on what the situation is, they're either going to be said, we're not being enough to condition them, or we don't have the right players. So the medical, the performance department come under a lot of scrutiny throughout the, the season. And, and it's again, it's just how you, you try and manage those situations and say, look, okay, you know, this guy is going to play or he's not going to play. And I think that's, again, coming back to communication. So one thing that you always see is a fan, like the manager gets sacked, the new manager comes in and it's right, the players aren't fit enough. So you're you're managing that whole process. So I'm sure you've read and seen that before. So like, have you experienced that sort of thing where you read in the press, oh yeah, I'm going to come in and they're not fit enough. Like, how do you manage that? Bear, bear in mind, you're managing the whole sports science area. You have to, and you have to accept it. And again, it's about the ego thing, is that you've got to leave that behind. Because again, there are different styles as, as there are many different ways to treat back pain. There are many different ways to train and to have uh, sportsmen and, and teams fit. So depending on the style of play is going to influence what they do. So again, rather than me judging it, I'm there to support. If that's what you want, this is what it is. But again, it's making sure that, you know, even though we're giving advice on what the training programs are like, it's the coach's decision ultimately. And if they feel that you're supporting them, that's okay. So there's a couple of rough rides, but they just want to see that you're there to support them and not to say, oh no, we used to do it like this. This is what you should be doing. This is going to go wrong. You there provide as much uh, support as you can. When injuries come on, it's not about saying, okay, I told you so, or whatever else you see, you should not have done that. You've just got to pick it up. And you just got to say, okay, well, let's deal with it. My, my role is to look after players as much as I can, provide as much support. Again, there are coaches that not just on the fitness side, they don't want players to be lying around in the treatment tables. They want to actively discourage that. Other coaches like that. It creates a good camaraderie. There's communication within the locker room and the room. So you've got to try and find it out. And it's how you find those things out quickly with coaches and see to them, okay, what is it, what's your style? There's occasions I've made mistakes because, you know, that's what I thought was right, but I accept that, again, as I said, there are many, many different ways to skin a cat. And it's, again, if you stick to one way and the only way that you're going to treat 
back pain is with acupuncture, you're not you're going to get success, but there are going to be many many times where it doesn't work, and you've got to be able to be flexible and say, okay, well let me move on. The player doesn't like acupuncture, he doesn't like needles, he doesn't like whatever else, or this player absolutely loves it, or he comes and tells me that this is what I want, and I, even in my heart I know that this is not the way that it should be done. I have to buy by that and hopefully over time educate them, expose them to techniques that I've, in my experience, found to be better. That gains the trust. But if from day one you refuse to do something, you're not going to survive in this profession. Because the player, ultimately, he, he certainly believes he knows what's right, whether you think it's right or wrong. You've just got to try and educate them. And, you know, I know I haven't touched on it, but education becomes a big part. Coaches, players, front office, you can't just say, no, you can't play. You've got to explain what that injury is, what it means, what the healing time is, what this medication is going to do to them, what this procedure will do to them. If the more educated they become, the easier it is for us to communicate. The less you actually spend time with them trying to explain what it is, why he's got the hamstring injury, why it keeps breaking down, it's going to keep repeating itself because you're not changing anything. Until they say, okay, well, maybe my training methods, maybe we shouldn't go in for full-out sprints uh, the day before a big game and doing things. You know, it's just putting that information out there so that they can wear it and say, hey, this is what we're finding. This guy may, may have, he felt it tighten up the day before. It's how you word that. But ultimately, the responsibility is on educating the coaches and the players. Yeah, no, it's really interesting because it's just it's great to get the insight of, of, of all the different things. Like the physio bit is kind of that's that's a small <laughs> element. <laughs> yeah. um, and then so you mentioned that example about Gareth Bale and Harry Redknapp. So like, how does that come about? Is that just a very blunt thing that the manager says, right, don't do that with him? Or how, how does that how did that come about in that instance? Well, it's, uh, Jeff uh, Scott, um, who's now head of the department at Spurs, who's been there many years, tries to run on the field, and uh, Harry goes berserk and won't let him on. So that's happened. We saw it in Chelsea, you know, with with, uh, with Mourinho previously, where they go on, they get blamed for certain things, and sometimes that's how you learn. You know, it's not a case of okay, these guys bring in their do's and don't lists. It's very much learning as you go, accepting that. Again, I'll, I'll stress, put your ego in the back door before you get into the building you're going to take it but then standing up to it and don't be offended by it necessarily you can challenge it by all means but stand up to them because they respect that that's what this business is about they're there to win they want the best out of it and they, if they can trust you they're going to listen to you more and more so there are times when you just have to stand up and not say oh and i'm not going to work for you i'm upset and then you start um, bad mouthing off to the players because that information is going to get back to the coaches. You need to support and say, hey, Gareth, let's do it. And he became a phenomenal player. Well, part and parcel, I don't know. But that was what was happening. And that's how we learn on the job. And, and again, the message to young physios is accept that. You're going to be pointed out. You're going to be shouted at by coaches who don't know much about medical. But then it's our responsibility to educate them and mm. give them and so in that instance then, does the manager take responsibility? So if like Bale in this example, if he says, look, why is no one coming on? Does the manager be like, well, no, because I've said. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And unfortunately, at that time, the player ended up with a, a stress fracture in his foot. So, <laughs> but it's, 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 it's a case of, you know, if you cry wolf too many times, um, something has happened. So it's again, it's about toughening up players. It's extremely, elite sport is ex 
extremely tough. There are so many kids trying to get into sport and trying to, so some of the very talented kids may not be the most resilient or the toughest, and they don't have careers because they can't deal with that pain and things and that there. But there's a fine line. But again, it's that whole process and not then shoving it in Harry's face and saying, this is what happened because you didn't allow it on. So, okay, well, let's try and work with it, guys. Let's try and get better. This, this happened because you kept rolling around as if you've been shot by um, a gun when there was nothing wrong with you. That's what happens to that. Let's change that narrative. Let's change that. Then the coach buys into it. So you're not blaming him. You're not running to the owner and saying, this is what happened because of that. You know, this is, it's happened. Whether you ran onto the field or not to the material, obviously you had to come off shortly afterwards, but you know, that's just what happens. Mm, yeah, no, really interesting. I mean, it, it makes complete sense when you explain it, but I guess that's, that's part of the art, isn't it? It's being able to see that and like you say, not have the uh, the ego to, to feel like you've got to be it, it running the show. Right. Um, so no, really interesting. So yeah, so then you've been at Tottenham. So we'll, we'll come back to some some people that you've worked with there. But how did the move to America happen? That, again, it's uh, this is bizarre. I actually thought I was being conned at, at one stage with this thing because I got a phone call leaving a game on my way home um, after a Tottenham game. Um, by the owners at, uh, at at that stage, it was at Miami Dolphins. Oh no, sorry, sorry, my apologies. At uh, San Antonio Spurs, the basketball, they they were looking for someone again to replace the head of medical department. Things had gone wrong with one of their top players again, and there was a blaming. You said that he did this, I did that, whatever else. But whatever they wanted to change, so they asked me to come, and I was interested. I said, hey, an opportunity to go work with uh, the NBA. Uh, San Antonio Spurs, who's one of the all-time greatest franchises in the history of sport, with uh, Greg Popovich, who's been one of the longest-serving coaches in all of sport, and a phenomenal individual. So I thought that is an experience I've got to try. I've got to go out and see um, how that, that works out. So I went over there, um, and the, the weird thing is that <clears throat> I went to, and then I met with them. It was great. Everyone was very happy with the, the, the situation. They wanted me to come and work with them. I was then taken to have a look at some houses in the area by a, a woman called Katie, who I then found out her surname was Tottenham. So I said, no, 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 no. I'm going from Spurs to Spurs and I'm seeing Katie Tottenham. No, no, no. I'm being stitched up. This is a serious stitch up going on here. So, so anyway, we dealt with it. So she took us to an area in San Antonio called Arsenal. And I said, no. This is, this is too weird. <laughs> There's got to be something fishy going on here. There's something really strange, strange happening. All right. So anyway, I, I, I had a fantastic time. They were a brilliant organization. They still are today. Um, R.C. Burford, who was again their um, sort of main guy in the front office, uh, he helped me out. And he and at the end of it, they, they pretty much offered me the job when I was on the way back. But in America, they offer you a job and say, right, we'll see you in two weeks' time. You know, that's, that's how it works. I said, hang on a minute, you guys. I'm stuck. I'm still in the contract at Tottenham. I, I'm not going to leave a team midway through a season. It's going to take me a long time to get into the US because of visas and passports and everything else and get my, my, my physiotherapy recognized over there. I had to go and sit the exams and do everything else again. So that's the process. I can't just be up and move in two weeks' time. So unfortunately, that, that fell through, or fortunately, it fell through, because then they contacted a good friend, Mike Tannenbaum. RC contacted Mike Tannenbaum, who was working with the Dolphins at that stage, and they were also looking for someone. But 
they were actually on their way to play an NFL game at Wembley. So I met with the owners of the Miami Dolphins then in Wembley when I came back. And they offered me a job and they had a bit more time. They said, look, okay, we can see you in February or more, you know, of, of the following year, which gave me ample amount of time to then go to the, the Spurs, to Daniel Levy and explain my situation to them. I said, look, this is a wonderful opportunity. I'm really keen. And, and again, that was NFL football. So uh, the next thing I knew, I was going to Miami and I was knocking on the door of one of the biggest franchises in, in NFL history and trying to understand uh, a little bit about football. So that, that, that's what happened with that. So, yeah, what was that like then? So you've, you, did you go over to Miami um, after you'd met them at Wembley? Yes. So then I went over to, to Miami and they were going to put me in a similar position because, again, they were trying to, they also had these silo issues where they had the strength um, and conditioning sports science department in one silo and then the medical athletic trainers, everyone else in the, in the other department. And they wanted someone to bridge that over. And because of my experience of working with that, they wanted someone outside of the US that had that experience and that background to come and work within that organization. So that was the job description at that stage and those were the plans. Unfortunately, when I got there, now I remember the first meeting that I had was at the NFL Combine because I flew in at the time of the Combine in Indianapolis and I went into weather which I think was about minus 17 degrees and I said, uh, I wonder if I'm doing the right thing yet coming into to America. But we met with the um, NFL, the hierarchy there, and they said, no ways are they going to support this uh, structure. So they have a strong influence on, on how the job descriptions and, and how people, they didn't want someone that was potentially biased towards the strength and the influencing the medical side of it, even though it was medical. So my performance director role wasn't in, in on paper so much as an overseeing thing. Again, it relied on communication, sitting the two heads of departments down, the head strength coach and the head athletic trainer saying, listen guys, I'm yet to try and bridge this. Let's work together. I'm going to give you your autonomy in your various sections, but let's try and bridge this rather than working in the silence. And it was fantastic. You know, that was, again, an experience that was similar to what I explained in rugby because of the pure physicality of the NFL. These players have got a bond like is unknown to any any other sports teams. The, the harsh reality of the NFL is that a lot of those players only have contracts for two weeks. They don't they don't get bought and sold. They, there's not a value to that. They get traded out and they get sent out or they just get axed and said, right, that's it. Obviously, their franchise players get substantially more amounts of money. But for a lot of those players, they're having to play. And can you imagine only playing 16 or now 17 games a season? That's all you play, 16. So if you lose two or three games, the impact that, that it has on your probability of making the playoff is massive. So having all of that experience and saying, wow, this is the pressure on a game day of so few games with so many, such a high stake was Again, exhilarating. It was something where rather than playing football, we're used to having so many games there, you just arrive, okay, we've lost two or three, we'll pick it up again, we'll go back again. This didn't happen in, in the football and in the terms under which these guys worked. So they had to play. Andy, could you imagine if you risk losing your contract with a sore knee or an ankle, you are going to play. And I recall, again, one of the vivid recollections is walking into the, on a game day, my first game day, and seeing about six or seven players with an IV drip on them, getting before the game. 
getting fluid hydration put into it. And I went nuts. I said, well, you can't do this, guys. This is, this is, you're not allowed to do this. The water, what is it going to, this is drug, this is doping. You get, you, it's an offense to do this. No, 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 no. They have their own American thing. That's fine. We, we can do that. So they can try to understand and the injection and things that were going on there. But, you know, a phenomenal group of, of players. It was a tough, tough sport. We would fly, you know, on an airplane to, uh, to, to the games that have five buses waiting for us to take the players and staff. We travel with about 160 people to a game. The equipment guys, uh, you know, if anyone in football or soccer is working and thinks they're busy, they should try working in American football where you've got helmets, gloves, and the weather conditions there are extreme. Playing in Buffalo, whatever else, where it's freezing and it's snowing, you have to have on the side benches these thick coats. You have everything. So the amount of equipment that these guys had to do was phenomenal. And then it was obviously trying to understand the positions because it's again, it's a it's a sport where it's all about set set plays, literally everything. So the players need to know up to 200 different combinations of plays and sets that they have to go through. The offense come on, the defense and offense and special teams and things and that they're going there. So again, having some experience in rugby, I was under, I sort of got to understand the physicality side of it. But what I didn't realize is just the precision and the absolute dedication to working that these guys had where they'd arrive at the facility at 6, 6.30 in the morning, I'd start my treatments and they'd leave at seven, eight o'clock at night. And they'd have meetings in between with their own groups, like the running backs or the wide receivers, they'd have their meetings and then offense and defense would meet and then the teams would meet. And then they'd go through video, the cutting, the breaking down of video, the taking it to the level. It was a complete next level for me of just how much detail they were going into that. Equally going into the weight room and working in their gyms and seeing the weights and the, the the power that these guys have was again incomparable to any other sport that I've ever seen. These were giants, and again, look, they had bursts of energy. So just trying to get your head around just how much um, weight that these guys are lifting. It brings me back to going to the combine, where again the combine. I don't know if you're aware of what happened in the combine, but it's all the college athlete, or well, not all, but a selected 300 or so college athletes go to the combine every year. All the teams go back there and they scout. So that's how you do your scouting and then you get your pick for the draft and then they have a look and they interview players and they do whatever else but these players need to go through various tests and to say okay what are we going to do how are you going to um, select this player and looking at the speed these guys were breaking olympic records with the vertical jumps because you could imagine if you've got talent like that and you can jump vertically are you going to become an athlete or you're going to become an nfl player so those guys go to the nfl I watched they have a bench press situation where you do 100 kgs and you bench press your maximum how many reps what would you think would be a reasonable number of 100 kilogram bench press <laughs> what do you like to guess on that yeah i saw a guy do 50. <laughs> you've never seen but it was like the weirdest thing it was like the closest thing to like almost like uh, in the back in the slavery days where they'd march these guys up and down in their underwear basically because they'd look at the arm width they'd look at their, their physique they'd be measuring them and seeing these these were the most phenomenal athletes that i've ever 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 seen it's 50 states right in the us that's basically equivalent to 50 countries that can select 300 players to come into that into their group so you can imagine the talent and the size of these guys it is unbelievable. It was just such an eye-opener for me. It was just 
I think my jaw is hanging you know, to the floor everywhere everywhere I turn. I just said, this is I've never seen anything like this in all my international careers, even in professional soccer, football. I'd never seen anything like that. So that was, that was uh, really I, I'm I'm so thankful again to having been exposed and having worked within an organisation like the Miami Dolphins, and having witnessed and seen just how dedicated these athletes are. But that's a price. They get hit hard, and they hit hard, even with that protection. And in Miami, you got the humidity and the temperature. So we are doing training, and the game lasts about three hours. Where you at about at that stage, it was about sometimes up to about 90, 100 uh, degrees Fahrenheit. And you got the humidity of about 90. These guys were losing 20 pounds in a practice. Because if you've got a helmet and gloves and everything else, and you're standing outside in the boiling heat and training and sprinting and colliding and doing things, the impact and the toll on it is tremendous. So the heat stress alone was something that we had to do. We, we had air-conditioned benches on the side that we, the players would come and take a, a breather just to try and bring their temperatures down. Yeah, no, it's crazy. Do you think in terms of like those athletes, then, is football, American football, is, is that like the, the number one sport? So basically, are you getting the cream of that talent pool, do you think? Pretty much so. I think it's close between that and basketball. Um, seeing some of the talent there, I think the, the guys that maybe don't like so much of the physicality side of it prefer the basketball side of it. But, you know, the, the, the passion and the love for American football is immense. It is it's, it's a national sport for them, without doubt. You know, and having the national anthem played before every game and the, the, the jets flying over things, it is incredible. You know, and and fans and that live for that. You know, they they live for their their games. Yeah, now I've been to a couple of NFL games and they are like different level of entertainment. And yeah. The way that it's set up there, it's, it's hard to get a ticket, isn't it? Let alone uh, let alone anything else. Um, and in terms of like, did you notice any difference between the athletes then? Like their college system is different to football over here. So did you notice any difference in terms of well academic background for one? And I'm sure that they'll get. If they're really good, they, 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 they will obviously get them into the yeah. university scheme. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, so I'm, I'm divided, but more tending towards pro college, US college system where the athletes go rather than the academies per se. So getting these guys into to colleges, educating them, getting it, it develops a college, it creates a, a great, uh, you know, competition levels at the various colleges. These guys can compete at a, at a fairly senior level. Uh, before they get then, you know, drafted into some of the professional teams. So instead of having academies, they would just go from college to combine, to draft, to the NFL. That's if they make it, right? So again, the, the fact that they would help with the education, I think is the important thing, rather than stripping away the education. I know a lot of the EPL teams, and certainly at Spurs, they were very pro. They had classes for the younger kids that come in and under nines that they make sure that there was the education that do as much. Again, the, the good thing with the um, NFL was that they had player engagement, that they get them on MBA courses, they do a whole lot of things to try and further their education as much as possible. So that was very strong in the NFL, just how much they looked after each individual and said, right, your future, the average career in the NFL is three years. I know it's a lot longer for a lot of people, but it's, it's only three years because majority of them, when they get in there, they don't make it beyond a year. Right. 
and that's it. They just get burnt out. They, they're basically there as training people for the next group, and that's all they do. They're never quite good enough to go there. So, you know, if you make it beyond the first year, you're probably going to make it a lot longer than three years. But unfortunately, a lot of them get uh, shunted out after a year. Um, so the education is a big role, an important thing for a lot of them. And again, it's up to the athlete. Not all of them choose to go that, that direction. But they're very good. The player engagement guys that I worked with and the Dolphins were extremely impressive and extremely active with the players, making sure they were involved and, and, and got them opportunities where they could. Mm. Um, before we move on to like your next move, like why do you think they approached you? Like you had two US teams interested. Like why do you think they were speaking to you? Uh, I don't, I, to be honest, I'm, I'm not really, no, I know Mike Davison, who um, works with the Ice Kinetic, he's been around, I've been working with him and sort of in between, and we've been good friends for a long, long time, and I know he was instrumental in the first, sort of putting my name forward, because they, they were doing a global search, so he put my name to RC, RC contacted me, I went over there, and, and um, you know, that that's what came of that, and then when I couldn't do the, the Spurs gig the first time out, um they he put um uh, but passed my name onto mike tannenbaum and as i said they so happened to be coming to um london wembley to play at wembley so i think again fortuitous right place right time but also willingness to to go out there and and and, and push myself and challenge myself and see can i can i deal with this mm, yeah no, absolutely so then what happened uh how did it come to an end at miami Again, RC contacted me again about after four years in the, in the Dolphins. Says, hey, Wayne, we've just moved on from the person that we brought in. Um, you know, when when we wanted to sign you, um, he's going back. Uh, he was going back to Australia. Would you be interested? And no, initially they said we're looking for someone. Can you recommend? So I gave him a whole lot of names. I said absolutely, RC. I've been in contact with him for a while. That's the least I could do because he'd helped me. And then after a while, they came back and said, hey, Wayne, what we actually meant is that, would you be interested? <laughs> and I said, look, you know Mike Tenenbaum. Um, I, you know, I'm very happy. I've always, you know, it would always be a dream to go and work basketball. I'd love to come and work with you guys. But, you know, I, I owe it to the Dolphins. I'm, I'm very happy here. I, I, want, I want to continue with it. So he spoke to Mike, and it was fine. It resolved very amicably. We're still on very good terms. It wasn't an issue with that. And it comes down to that ability to communicate. And to put it up there and not just say, right, I'm leaving, I'm out of here, I'm on to the next best thing. Because you don't burn bridges in sport and in life, in fact. But And that's the other thing is that make sure you maintain it, you, you respect what they are. You go to them and say, these are the situations. I saw out my time with them. I helped them get the, the next uh, situation uh, position in place. And then I moved on to San Antonio. And that was in 2018. Right. So then, like, what was that? Because you, you say you mentioned about the, the short season in terms of the number of games. Then basketball is the other end of this. Well, it's not quite baseball, but it's the other end of the spectrum. You're spot on with that. 100% right. So, yeah, that, that was, again, where I'd gone from a sport where they'd played 16 games a season and, and practiced day in, day out for months to a team that played month in, month out and then very seldom practiced. So I think... On record, they may have had only 17 practices a year. They almost had as many practice sessions as the Dolphins had games. But, you know, the number of games that they had is 80. So it was, you know, it was a different thing going, getting onto an airplane, flying across there, getting into a city, time zones, three o'clock in the morning, getting yourself ready, 
getting up the next day, preparing for the game, playing, getting on a plane, traveling to the next city, whatever. So it is, that was a different dynamic, um, really tough. You needed a, a good cohesive group of, of staff, again, performance, because if you're with those people all the time, you want people that you get on well with, because that's all you ever see. You don't see family. I didn't know what day it was. It was either game day minus one, game day, or game day plus one. So that was that was my week. You know, that's, that's pretty much how it worked. And I was there when obviously the COVID situation hit, and uh, we went into the bubble um, and played in Orlando. That was quite an experience. Again, bringing all the teams into one little group, and again, it's just in the US where they are able to do. They turned Disneyland into this mega basketball arena. They had several arenas there. All the teams was positioned in different hotels and they just isolated, they cordoned the whole area off. So we played in our own little bubble and they had these fantastic courts, they had medical staff, they had everything, they had food, they had everything organized, testing, we had bands that tracked us, we had everything. That was, they did a great job. It's just, I was very impressed. So that, that was something that again, you know, was taught me just how the Americans can deal with situations like that and at the scale in which they can work at was unparalleled to anything that I'd seen. Um, my last season uh, with the uh, San Antonio Spurs, again, we'd lost quite a few games through the sort of ongoing COVID situations. And our second half of my last season, I think we had to play 40 games in 68 days. So we never, Andy, we never had more than one day off between games in those 40 games. In five occasions, we played five games in seven days. So again, it's just teaching us where I thought, oh, you know, you can't play every day. You can't do this. These guys would get up and it's again, it's how you coach them, how you, you deal with it, what happens before the game. You know, there's, they have like little quizzes. Uh, one of our athletic trainers is super good at it. Every time you'd have these questions and he'd get the players to try and guess, you know, like general quizzes or whatever. It was a lot of fun, but you'd never do that in a football team. You'd never do that, certainly in American football and, and EPL. That that would be, what are you doing? But you need to engage these guys because that it becomes such a habit and such a routine that you've got to try and get them up for each and every game. But equally, you lose one game, you just got to get on with it. You've got to move on. You've got to shut that off. You've got to learn quickly, and then you've got to go back to the next city. So those are the, the little things The players, because there's, a, again, a smaller number of players, I was able to give more individual attention, is which what I prefer, unfortunately, to the, the football, where you have so many players on your rosters. You have 50 players. You can't give them the attention that I like to give them that I thought they could do. You just... Basically, we're patching up, moving on to who could do what. That was it. That's all the time that you had. But the beauty of the basketball is that you work with these elite athletes and there's a handful of them. So you're dealing with 13, 14, 15 on a game day. I might see six or seven just before that. Each player's got his routine. They come in and do their, their set works with, with you. You do that and you get to know them really, really, very well. And you can plan the recovery. You can do those things because you're dealing with smaller numbers. You're not traveling to a hotel in five buses. You're traveling, you know, with one or two, if that. And so there's there's pros and cons to both sides. But again, it's just allowing yourself to be exposed to the different sports and finding out what what you prefer. And as I said, you know, I don't. I, I preferred moving around and challenging myself. Where a lot of the people that I've worked with had been at the clubs for years and years. And kudos to them. You know, that's it's not easy staying there and being through all the changes and things. But you know, they became really specialist in that one individual sport where I was fortunate where I could learn tricks of the trade all over the world.
Yeah, unfortunately, if you've got a load more questions on these, but I'll, I'll try and get through them quickly. So in terms of that then, so basketballers, from what I see, they, they seem to play on until they're quite old, certainly the high level ones, like LeBron James, I don't know where he's at, Kobe Bryant, obviously RIP, um, but he was playing at very high level at the um, at the end of his career, like Tim Duncan was a yeah. um, Spurs, like you've got players that they do play on, and yet they're huge guys, they're playing so regularly, so how do, how do they do that? Like, are they are they really patched up when they're playing? Um. Yes and no, but I think it's also because of the individual attention that they can get, you know, and the, and the emphasis on recovery. So a lot about what you learn there is you have to upskill on as much recovery on the flight home, what you're doing, compression garments, whatever else, and you do it quickly post games, you ice tubs, you do everything else. So there's a lot more emphasis and need on the recovery on the individual players. Uh, we had a great sports scientist, the uh, head of sports science, uh, Chavi Schelling, who's taken over my position, and he would basically work out how much the players were playing, doing that, you know, workload situation, acute and chronic workload, and 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 talking to the coach and saying, hey, these guys, you know, we need to restrict his number of minutes. And again, the coaches would say, okay, we're playing a team where we think we can afford to rest some of the star players, we, but these are the games that we want to win. This is what we want to play. So again, there's a lot of that attention to detail and not just playing each player for 48 minutes consistently. You've got to play them. You've got to manage them appropriately to do that. So there's a lot more management coming from the minutes, the loading that they're doing, how they're feeling, reporting accurately. Again, because you've got such a small team and you have a coach like Greg Popovich who's, who's very interested, he talks to players and he doesn't want to risk them. He's not a coach that's saying, we've got to win this. The player's health comes first, always. Right. You know, obviously he'd want them to try and play, but, you know, he does respect that. So he was fantastic at, at, at listening to us, listening to the players and saying, okay, well, this is what I think we need to do. And again, the beauty of that is he's trusted some of the, the, the bench players to come on and do their job where some of the other teams are just played out their top players all the time until they're fatigued towards the end of the season. And then come playoff time, these guys are exhausted. Where the, and then the bench players hadn't had enough opportunity to play, so they were rusty by the time they came to play. So it's like managing all of those things, is that don't burn out your players. Use them sensibly. Bring them out, even when they're still fresh, even if they want to do a little bit more. Just manage them. You know, and that, and that, that taught me a lot about recovery, management, time management, etc. Mm. Yeah, really interesting. And like, during the time that you were there, the the last dance, the Michael Jordan documentary came mm -hmm. out. So bear in mind, you're on the inside. What was the reaction within the Spurs like when that came out? Yeah, I think they're very supportive of it. They understood. You know, they know the background thing and their sensationalism to a lot of those things, but they know the egos and things that go on with it. But I think the, the messages that came from the last dance for me is that the background and the dedication that these guys have to put in and the competitiveness and, and what it takes. Because one player can influence a team significantly more in basketball than you can do in football, in soccer, in any other sport. Because there's those, say if you've got a LeBron or if you've got a, a Jordan, you, you know, those players can make a massive difference to what it is. And they need to be leaders as well. And it can very quickly go south if they don't get on, if the leaders don't lead, you've got problems. You're sitting with serious problems within that team because you can't sideline them because that's what it is. So they are very powerful in that sport. Um, and I think it was just, they know it. You know, they know that some of the things were made, obviously, for the case of sensationalism and making stories and doing whatever else. But the truth behind it is the background that these guys come from. 
and the work ethic and what they've got to do in order to win championships and to sustain it, to be at the top level. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the best shows I've ever seen. I think that I absolutely loved it. It gave really, really good insight. Uh, and then this is a question that, so it's kind of a two-part question. So one thing, my friends are always talking to me about what we do, like selling medical devices to teams. But everyone just assumes, right, these clubs, Tottenham Hotspur, you're kitting out this place. They just assume that there's an unlimited budget in medical departments. First question is, I know that that's not the case and you've got to justify for these things. And so there's that one. How is that budgeting from someone building a sports science and medical department? And then secondly, how does that differ from the UK to America, if at all? OK, I think so. the first part of the question, certainly it's a big part of the role of the head of the department is the budget. So again, you have to things approved and whatever else. And again, it's through education about and, and, and validating certain instruments and things because there are clubs and there there's, certainly is a pattern of of clubs throwing money at various devices, but then not fully understanding how those devices work, not having properly trained people to work with those devices. So it's all good to have the the glitz and the glamour and, and everything else, and the, you know, the, the fantastic pieces of equipment. But if you don't know how to use it and you don't use it appropriately, that's not unfortunate enough to be able to then. Um, sorry, Andy, I lost you for a bit. You're back. Yeah, yeah, no, you're back here. Yeah, we caught that. Yeah. Okay. Sorry about that. So yeah, and and again, as I put put a budget together, it wasn't an ended endless budget, and I'd have to propose things, and and that worked across the board in the US and then in all my experiences that to to budget for things. But again, if there was good reason, and you could show that there was a potential for helping people, then definitely. Now, again, that it can be influenced by managers, their experience with certain players, your top players coming in and say, right, this is what I've had, this is the treatment that I want. You know, we introduced Pilates at a very early age where it was still unheard of almost back at Tottenham. We started with a lot of those things. Uh, and again, that sort of took on and it became more and more important. So we had invest in reformers and everything else that came on. We had uh, EPI, which is um, uh, an electrical percutaneous injection where that, that almost like a cathode injection into an area and stimulate that area and to promote healing. That was a Spanish thing. Um, and from Barcelona, and then I went and did courses with that. And because of the coaches that we had at that, that, that stage, that's what they had heard, and they that had good experience with that. We had to go out and explore these different technologies and techniques, and then bring them back into the club and see how they work. So, yeah, certainly, you know, I was very well supported throughout, but it definitely wasn't an endless budget. And I think that's important because otherwise, people just buy, and there's no accountability. And certainly you get a reputation really quickly if you're going and buying pieces of equipment, strength equipment, and it gets used for one day and then doesn't get used again. You know, the, certainly the financial directors are very aware of what's going on. But if it's well used and the players are happy with it, then you get all the support you need. And that's yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a good answer. No, I think that's a good insight on that as well. And then finally then, so it's going to be a difficult one for you because you've already gone on for ages in terms of like, you've got so much experience. But who are the people that you would say have been most influential in your career or life even? Yeah, I, th I think um, the first one is my wife, uh, Jean. She's also a physiotherapist. Um, so she had to give up a lot in order to, to follow me all over the place. So she set up practices and, and then I said, I oh, know I've got a job in Cape Town. I'm going to the Sports Science Institute. I know, okay, give up her practice in Johannesburg. Go and help me set up a practice in South Africa. Set all of those things up. And then, oh, no, 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 I've got a position in Gloucester. Then move all the way to Gloucester and do that. 
and then start working in one of the NHS hospitals there and really loving it and wanting to do extra stuff. And then suddenly, oh, no, 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 now I'm going to London and things. Then she's set up a practice from home in London, trying to get that established and that really very, very well. And then the next thing, I was off to the US. But, uh, and that's unfortunately where her career ended because becoming a physical therapist in the US is not just walking in and, and waving a little certificate and say, hey, I'm a graduate physio from the UK. I did additional courses. It took me about a year and a half to get the, the, the qualifications. And Jean just said, no, you know, I can't, I can't be doing this and that. So certainly I think uh, she was, you know, the back support for me, understanding what it is, you know, and willingness to move different countries, experience different things, and the sacrifices made on our kids and our, and our young family, you know. That's the hard part of sport, as you know. You know, you, you sacrifice all your weekends, the, the time away. That's it. You know, I'm not going to be there when my son's first uh, football rugby game is going to be. His, my daughter's first play, her first netball game. I'm not going to be there because I'm with the team. So you lose out on so many of those things. And you've got to be prepared to do that if you want to make headway in, in the sport, unfortunately. You know, and that's not for everyone. And everyone can, can make their choice. So... You know, Gene was certainly a big influence in my career. Uh, Tim Noakes, uh, sort of the legendary uh, sports scientist in, in the UK and um, South Africa in Cape Town. You know, he was very challenging in, in what he does. He still is today. You know, he's, he's controversy wherever he can, and he will challenge whatever people consider is the the modern, you know, that's the debate on whether VO2 oxygen is the most important thing to limit uh, performance. He goes and says, no, it's a peripheral thing. It's a muscle rather than that. And that's his whole life. So he taught me to question the, the fundamentals and not just accept everything that you're told. So that was the beginning of it. And then oh, there are numerous people, you know, that, that gave me the opportunities to work in sport. Ishmael Yakut, who's unfortunately passed away. He was the doctor at the, um, the Springbok rugby team. He was a great influence in my life, uh, certainly in South Africa. Gave me the opportunities, got me into the international sports and, and gave me the belief in myself. He said, you can do it. And, you know, I'd question myself. I said, I can't go to uh, all Africa games. I don't have the experiences. You can. I will help you. You know, so you need people in your life that are prepared, that believe in you enough to support that. And then coming into the US, I mean, into the UK, Mike Davison, um, who I mentioned earlier, has been a great friend and a big support uh, of mine, um, giving me opportunities when I've needed it. So thanks to Mike, you know, that a lot of these things um, did transpire. And then going to the US, uh, you know, Mike Tannenbaum and the RC Burfords, who again believed in this person who had absolutely no clue about the sport, but was open to it. I didn't try and pretend I knew everything. And again, I think that's what they liked. They didn't want someone trying to come and say, well, they clearly knew I didn't know anything. The players knew I didn't know anything, but that wasn't what it is. So they, they actually quite welcomed that rather than they thought that I judged them. They just said, okay, Wayne's here to help me. He will learn and I did learn and I loved the sport and I got involved as much as I can and I try to teach myself as much as I can with those things. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure I've missed out uh, several uh, very, very influential people, but you know, those are the ones that come to mind. Mm, no, brilliant, really good to know. I really appreciate your time on this. Is I think you might have got the record for the, the longest chat that I've had here, but well worth because you've given a really great insight into just like the business of sports physio as well, which 
I think I, I'm always fascinated by it, being a massive sports fan and certainly like I like American sports as well as the Premier League and no, that's been really good. So I really appreciate your time and uh, giving that up. And now you're based in Wales. You obviously used down the road from me in Manchester. So uh, I hope you're yeah. going to be able to get over at some point. I'll, I'll do. I'll, I'll definitely arrange a visit and come down. And you know, hopefully, whatever I've said might inspire some young guy somewhere, some mentor, someone believe to believe in themselves and say, I can do this. I can go out there. Given my background in South Africa, you know, to have been in three continents with multiple sports and do things and that. That was nothing I ever dreamed of, but I'm scared of having, as I said, to set a dream because that's what you aim for. So I didn't have any limits on what I was aiming for. I was just going to do the best that I could do, take the opportunities that came to me, and it's worked out for me. Brilliant. No, I think that's a great philosophy and a great note to finish on. So, Wayne, thank you very much for your extended time today. And, uh, yeah, I look forward to seeing you soon. Pleasure, Andy. Thanks very much and, and good luck with uh, what you guys are doing. Uh, I, I really support that. I think it's a tremendous benefit to the profession. Brilliant. No, I appreciate that. Thanks, Wayne. Take, take care, mate. Bye.